This series of the Make Life Work podcast is supported by Little Warden. They monitor your website for the boring things that people often forget until it's too late, so you can concentrate on making more. Plans start from £25 a month, but Make Life Work listeners get an exclusive 60-day free trial, plus all the referrals will be doubled, especially for the mental health charity Mind. Get your account today at littlewarden.com slash makelifework. Welcome along to another episode of the Make Life Work podcast. I am Cy Jobling, at Cy on Twitter, and on this podcast, I'm talking to people from around the tech scene about balancing work, life, well-being, and side projects. This week, I'm talking to Mark Littlemore, a software engineering team lead at the BBC, mostly based in Manchester. Mark has been on a really interesting journey with his tech career, very similar to myself, plus we share lots of outside interests in the likes of side projects, house music and even podcasts. He's also a family man with kids and tries to find a good balance with his health too. It made sense to invite Mark along as a guest for the Make Life Work podcast. Let's get into it. How's things going, Mark? Hi, right, Sally. So really good, mate. Yeah, it's good to uh, speak to you. Indeed. Yes, for people that don't know, we've known each other online for a long time, but um, we only met for the first time after 15 years last year, wasn't it? It was about 15 years, scarily. Yeah, something like 2005, oh. something like that, wasn't it? So, yeah, it's good Good to see you virtually. In real life, IRL, as the kids say. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we exchanged a few uh, beers, didn't yeah. we, when our paths crossed last year? Yeah, we need to do so soon as well. We do. We need to recap, I think. But this, this is a nice little yeah. kind of interim option. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good. Cool. So, let's get right back into the start. What got you into tech and how did you get started in it all? So I'm I'm instantly going to age myself, um, I think, with all of my answers. Here. <laughs> so I guess I started getting into tech very young, so probably about, I don't know, I guess about eight or nine. Um, my friends had a... <laughs> Again, Binetone Pong machine where you used to play that tennis game Pong. So I like, sort of got into, the, the, I guess, the earliest video games as they were. Um, and I remember going over to France when um, when I was a kid. Mum and Dad took me and my brother over to uh, to France and I played Space Invaders. And that was like the first, one of the first video games. So that must have been sort of late 70s, early 80s. Um, and when we came home, I badgered my mum and dad to get us an Atari VCS, which was the, the one of the original Atari consoles. Uh, again, played Space Invaders on that and Pac-Man probably. Um, but there was a big key thing. Mum worked in data entry in, in the evenings. So she was good at sort of typing and stuff. And she suggested this thing for the Atari VCS, which was basic programming. And it was this strange, so for, for people that don't know, like the, the Atari VCS had like a, a standard sort of joystick. But it had this weird controller that where you could sort of write code for it and i think you could only write some ridiculous like nine lines of code atari vcs didn't have much memory but it was like my first sort of oh this is interesting i can get a computer to do something so so i think at that point then i, then I started badgering my mum i sort of you know we started reading in magazines about computers and things and one of the earliest ones that was around at the time was the vic 20 commodore vic 20 so i think we got one of those when i was about 10 or 11 which is sort of early 80s and then my granddad also had a ZX81, which is uh, one of the original sort of um, Sinclair computers. So back in the day, again, dating myself in the 80s, you used to be able to like get those subscription magazines and there was one called Input. And my granddad was very kind and he used to buy it for me and my brother. And I used to just sit there each week typing in the programs from it. Because back in the day, I mean, I don't think kids realize it now. You turn on your tablet, you turn on your phone, you turn on your laptop, you're instantly on the internet and, and you've got a connection to sort of information. You know, back in the day to turn on a computer, you generally had like a basic interpreter 
and you had to code it yourself or, or you know load a game so so i spent my time sort of learning how to do that and i think that's what really got me into it into sort of computing yeah back in the day so my teenage years were just like spent playing video games we ended up with a spectrum and a commodore 64 as well so and i think commodore 64 was probably where i sort of did a lot of my programming it made little games me and my brother uh, we made i found the cassette actually called space mouse which was a, a mouse you had to try and fly across some sort of asteroid field or something like that he did the graphics he's always been arty and uh, yeah i did the programming for it yeah and then eventually um going back to 1990 now and i went to manchester university of manchester and um, so i'm originally from just a little place in cheshire just outside manchester probably about 35 40 minutes away and i went up to university of manchester to study computer science so i did uh, uh, three years of that i enjoyed that and enjoyed manchester that's when i, I started club going clubbing and djing and things like that a lot yeah and i guess sort of after university tried to find a job and i ended up working for a pharmaceutical company um, so I wrote software for gas chromatography, which is uh, essentially testing drugs and robot arms and things like that. And it was just boring. It, it, it sounds very glamorous when you start talking about robots, but it was literally making an arm just go left and right and up and down and then pulling some information out of that. So it wasn't exciting. So I really enjoyed games. I was really into gaming and I, I wanted to get into that that part of the industry. So I, I managed to get a job at a sort of quite a startup back in 1995, I think it was. And then I had a, a long career in games. So I spent about 18 years in the games industry and so ocean and infograms which were like big sort of 80s sort of 90s games companies i worked for acclaim who were another big one and they went bust um and i ended up at sony i think for for most of the time Um, and i think that is a sort of key thing about the games industry i I sort of realized that um, i don't know if you've got any friends in the the games industry other than me but the the work-life balance there is just horrendous and and you still see it today and it's a real shame that the sort of project management that happens around it sort of pushes the teams to work ridiculous hours i mean i know at one point i worked for probably around sort of six months where i was working i tend to get in early so eight half past eight nine o'clock till 10 11 o'clock at night and we were doing that for six seven days a week for six months and it's just you know you just watch relationships crumble you know marriages crumble things like that it's just not sustainable so so yeah so eventually i, I just realized as i started having children i got married in 2006 and then i started having children i just realized it just wasn't for me so I sort of started moving out of the games industry. 2010, I did a little bit of contracting within the games industry, but it wasn't really set up for it like we know contracting within sort of most of the tech industry. Um, and then eventually sort of moved over to the BBC in 2013, yeah. So that's a very long-winded how I got into tech there, wasn't it? Long-winded, but you fit quite a lot in there, actually. Um, well, there's, there's many things I want yeah. to pull out from that, but I think... You've just kind of demonstrated the evolution of software as well. You've gone from the early days in the 80s where you had... That, that's, that's definitely dating me, isn't it? I sound like a dinosaur now. No, but I was there as well, right? I, I was yeah, introduced yeah. to C64 myself. I think it was like late 80s more than mid or early. And a ZX81, yeah. a Sinclair ZX81, which had like 1K of RAM. That's right, yeah. <laughs> You got a booster pack for 16K RAM. So my dad showed me how he built like a stock management program. And then we went into the Commodore and we started doing a bit wow. more. We were playing the games, like you say, making our own games. And then it was through the 90s. Like you say, you were in the midst of probably the highest peak of gaming, I guess. Because that was the revolutionary point of where it went into consoles, yeah. big name consoles. You mentioned Acclaim, Codemasters, yeah. and uh, Sony, and all these. Yeah, there were huge names at the time. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I just I probably just missed out on the sort of late eighties, the the eight bit sort of era when when Ocean was in its prime. I guess I moved to Ocean. It got bought by a French company, Infogram, so it was sort of going downhill a little bit. But then that was the move to the first PlayStation, PlayStation 
as it was called then, PlayStation One. I think they refer to it now. Sort of the you know the, the post Mega Drive up until the sort of the next generation of consoles. So yeah, for sure, it was a good time, and I had fun. I, th- I think the thing I had to sort of let people know is that the games industry is definitely fun. It's definitely creative. It's just there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. I think some people think. Especially if you ever used to tell people you worked in games, everyone's like, oh, it's really exciting. You play games all day. And it's like, mm, not quite. You know, someone still writes the the code which reads the thing from the CD drive or the DVD drive or Blu-ray nowadays. Um, you know, there's all those really boring things that people still do. It's not all super exciting. So No, I've heard the same. I've got a friend at work who's he used to work in games. I think he was at Microsoft. He was working on the Minecraft side of things as well. Oh, cool. So again, he, he said a lot of the same stuff. He's, he's our sort of age age range. He's got the family. It's very demanding and it's very sort of waterfall driven from a software delivery perspective as well. You, you can't mess that up. Yeah, but yeah. I want to go back to, I think, like one of your first jobs. You were talking about working in pharmaceutical with robotics. So like you say, it sounds, wow, yeah, amazing. Yeah. But you described it as, no, it was really dull and boring. But don't you feel like we're kind of going full circle now as we go into the newer era of tech where it's all about robotics and pharmaceuticals and all the real world uses of these things? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess it, I, I think it was just sort of a learning process for me because I, I came out of university and while I, you know, I was a developer as such, I think you realize once you actually start coding properly in a real world environment, it's very, very different than the sort of sanitized university environment that you get taught you can just do these things and then you realize there's you know especially as me as a team lead now there's a lot of pragmatic decisions you've got to make around what you actually do you can't just pick up the fancy new code and especially nowadays you know in the sort of the javascript node world and stuff where there's loads of new things all the time and you know everyone wants to pick them up there's a lot of boring decisions and pragmatic decisions and especially that the pharmaceutical company i work for they, they had their own proprietary language for like the robot arms so it wasn't like I was gaining the experience of C, C++, um, sort of, you know, the, the languages of the time. I did a little bit, to be fair, I did a little bit of C there, but it was mostly I was writing in this sort of very similar to assembly language, uh, sort of proprietary uh, language that this uh, pharmaceutical company had developed. And to be honest with you, I, I dropped chemistry. Um, I was the first year of GCSE, so I dropped chemistry after. I did a GCSE in it, yeah, but, um, but I dropped it after that, so I didn't do it to A-level. So... I also had to understand the domain and I think that's always really interesting when you get a new job. Part of it is, you know, learning software, how you write the software, but part of it is understanding the domain, what actually matters within that domain. And to most I just had no interest in gas chromatography and, and sort of the, the science of it's like the old litmus paper where you put a litmus paper in some, you know, a liquid and work out how you know the different colours. It's essentially that but for but with gases. So I think I think that was part of it that I just wasn't as interested in that. And just because it wasn't a sort of domain that I was interested in. Um, and obviously, you know, as a sort of early 20-year-old, all I wanted to do was play video games. So that's why I moved moved across. Makes sense. I think there's two two elements to that. One, you, whatever you go into, make sure you enjoy it. You know, you don't want to do a job that you don't enjoy because otherwise it just becomes tedious and actually a job rather than a career. Yeah. So fair play to you on that. And I want to go back to the domain thing in a moment. But the, the other thing is you mentioned as well that you were young, you were trying to find yourself, you're in your 20s in Manchester, you know, during the height of all the music and the clubbing scene as well. I don't know how you managed to focus your energy on code. <gasps> I could just be in, in music instead, you know, it's what a time, eh? I guess that's quite quite interesting because, yeah, as we alluded to earlier, you and I sort of met through a sort of love of, of house music and, and sort of podcasts online at, at the time, sort of mid 2000s. But um, yeah, I started DJing back in 88, I think it was. Um, I got sort of into music. Yeah. I was I was into hip hop as a kid. Uh, this this little 
geeky white kid from a place called Frodham in the middle of Cheshire. But we got into hip hop and um, sort of all those sort of 80s sort of hip hop, De La Souls, Tribe Called Quest, that sort of thing. So I knew that I was, I was never going to be a rapper. <laughs> Go on a day now to break some beats. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, back in the day, it's, it's not like, you, you know, you just pick up a laptop in Ableton or, or you know, fruit, Fruity Loops or whatever and stuff like that, where you can just like make music easily. So I was never, I was never going to get into that production without buying a lot of equipment. So I convinced my mum and dad to allow me to get some uh, turntables. So I got a pair of old sound lab belt driven turntables and started DJing and so I could do scratching and all that sort of stuff. And that's how I sort of got into it. But yeah, and then I moved to Manchester and par- partially one of my reasons to go to University of Manchester was the Hacienda, which was the club of the time and where, where sort of acid house was sort of happening. Um, and, that, and you know that's why I went and uh, yeah so I, I did quite a lot of DJing during that time and I think I, I've always been annoyingly I weigh up risk very carefully um, I've never been sort of someone who'll just go out on a limb and, and do things without really considering it and my wife always laughs at me for that Claire and you know you know I'm, I'm just quite sensible and I think I saw a lot of people trying to take the I'm just going to DJ and I'm I, you know I'm going to make my money through that but I was always well you know a career in tech is quite good it pays reasonably well um, and it's going to pay off my rent or, you know, when I, when I bought a house, uh, you know, it's going to pay the mortgage and stuff like that. So I did see a lot of people. Uh, I've got um, a friend from Germany. He's, he's quite a famous, world famous DJ. And I just can't imagine getting to this age that I'm at now and wanting to go out every weekend. And, you know, he, he's away. He's, he's got family in Germany now and um, you know, he's, he's got a child and I can't imagine being out all the weekends and stuff like that. So I think that the transition was probably a sensible one for me. Although at the time, I probably sort of kicked myself a little bit that I didn't push myself enough to... I did a lot of DJing. I got relatively successful in Manchester and in Germany. Uh, I went over to Germany quite a lot. But I didn't necessarily push it. I, I didn't have that marketing sort of background to push myself even more, I guess. Uh, but yeah, good times. You're very humble there, Mark. <laughs> I like the way you say oh, it. I think you, you, made, you made a point about risk aversion as well, which obviously lend well to your current career as a team lead as well. So we'll revisit all the sort of the fun parts later on in the, in the yeah. discussion. Let's go back to that transition then from game development to software development for BBC. What attracted you to working in a different remit, let's say, a different domain, as you mentioned earlier, and how how did that go for you? Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. so it's it a little bit of a, um, I guess, a sort of side transition. So the BBC were looking, the, the BBC do a lot of game stuff. It tends to be in sort of the children, the area of sort of children's. But they were looking for, I had, I had a sort of colleague at one of the companies I worked for, which Sony bought a company and, and sort of their management team were, ended up being our management team in Liverpool. And he was working at the BBC with his sort of remit was to try and do like a, a pan BBC sort of, BBC is a massive sort of enterprise company essentially. And he was trying to do this sort of pan BBC idea of being the central place to, to teach people across the business how to make games because the BBC is essentially split up into the public sector and the private sector but in terms of the public sector there's two strands to it with like editorial who make all the sort of TV and the shows and stuff and, and the news things like that and sport and then the digital arm of it and I was moving into the digital arm and what he wanted to do was try and pull those two parts of the business together to help people to make games and have like a you know, set of APIs that they could easily do high scores and, and, you know, sign in and things like that. So so I moved over to more to do sort of games thing and he wanted my experience in sort of understanding games technologies, you know, working with outside vendors and things like that to, to help build games. So so it was it was really sort of a slight sidestep initially. But I'd also, I, you know, I'd badly built out my sort of DJ website and stuff like that on WordPress and a bit of PHP. And I, I had been doing little bits and bobs of sort of web tech at the time. So it was sort of interesting to me 
And I moved over and I started doing like Java, PHP, MySQL. Well, two of those which I had experience in PHP and MySQL. And then we started doing like more functional languages like Scala. But ultimately that whole thing, just trying to do something across the BBC, as I well know now, because I've been at the BBC for six years, it's much trickier. You need, and I'm sure you know this from your own role site, you know, stakeholder buy-in and when you've got many stakeholders you've got many senior people and you've got to get sort of digital people on board and editorial people on board and it, it just didn't quite pan out as expected so unfortunately my, my boss there he, he left and then i got really ill which i know we're going to probably loop back onto in a little bit mm. but i got really ill and um I, I wasn't actually in the office for about five months um, and then when i came back we'd started working we were already just just about starting to do this we we'd started working with a, a a big program of work that was happening down in london um, which was called my BBC to do like the BBC authentication authorization systems. And at that point, and that's what I currently do, um, we started sort of learning about that. And when I came back from being ill, we, we started looking at like JavaScript and Node.js. Uh, and, and to be honest, with you, I really hated JavaScript, despised it. Because I come from type, typed languages. So when I started doing JavaScript where everything could break really easily and you had no real types to, to you, know, you could pass around anything, you could pass around a function, you could pass around an object, whatever. I just really despised it and the, the, I don't think the tooling and things was there as it is now for me. But when I started moving over to Node.js, I was like, this is quite good. And the whole sort of package system of Node and I, I think the best example for me is, is how it improved my own workflow. Um, I used to do a lot of tooling within the games industry and I'd sit down and I'd spin up a, a you know a C module or a C++ module and it might take me a week to write some tooling. and. I found that like moving over to like Node.js, I can write that in probably about two hours now. Something that may have taken me a week. And it's just that it has moved over to being that I really love sort of Node and JavaScript. And I know it gets a really bad reputation. And I know you can hang yourself really easily with it. But I think as a sort of the ability to produce business value, which I think is ultimately, I, I've got my team leads head on there, haven't I? Uh, but I, th I think, you know, that, that, that's what we have to do. You know, we, we're trying to build stuff for our audience and the faster we can do it, the more we can iterate, the more we there can we get the data from that and understand whether it's the right thing. So yeah, so I, I moved over um, to this uh, this sort of team. That, that's when I returned, which was about 2015. And then I was a principal engineer because I'd come to the BBC as quite a sort of senior engineer and there's this sort of principal role that they've got. And then I moved over to being a, a team lead in about April 2017 because our team lead sort of left and I sort of took over the mantle uh, of doing that. But um, the, the transition into the tech I thought was really interesting. It just got me into sort of web tech. And then the, the great thing about going to a big enterprise company, especially the BBC, is the thing we do is at scale. And that's a massive chat it's a massive new challenge which opens up for you when you start having to understand that and i'm sure you you know from asos and things i'm sure you understand this that people don't seem to understand that there's a, quite a leap in terms of what you have to deal with on um, we don't deal with black friday but our, our black friday is strictly come dancing voting so you have to sign in through our systems we, we don't run the vote system but you have to sign in to have the ability to vote and on a Saturday night, our traffic goes through the roof in 30 seconds. And how do we put infrastructure in place to ensure that things don't crumble? And I'm, I'm sure for ASOS, it's things like Black Friday or Christmas and things like that, isn't it? Where it's those sort of technical challenges, which aren't how you show things to the user. It's how you stop the whole world from crumbling and the business from losing X million or whatever. It's, it's those sort of things which I found really fascinating at, at scale. So, yeah. Nice. Well, there's loads of things in there that as well that we could probably pull out. We'd be here all day, though. I was going to say, we might be all afternoon, won't we? <laughs> um, yeah, just to reiterate what you were saying, really, I guess I was the same. 
I, I was I was an engineer for 10, 15 years nearly. And then I was more attracted to the idea of one, what's the customer and business value in what we're doing? Focus on that faster feedback, getting something to market soon, but at good quality. And then the resiliency of doing things at a huge scale as well. So I feel like we've kind of gone down a similar journey. It's more like I've, now I know how to do it at a normal level. How do I get others to do it? And how do we make sure that works across the board as well? So it sounds like you've, um, you're attracted to similar challenges as I have been as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think the, tr- the transition to sort of a, a team lead is an interesting one as well. Um, yeah. that, that sort of ha- how you sort of view yourself and how you build up a team to do the things and, and how, you know, empower the teams, I guess. And that's, I think that comes with sort of age experience and sort of moving across from, as a developer, you know what you're delivering. So you, you essentially you sit down and you, know, you have this sort of piece of work that you have to deliver and you know the value is there once it's on live you know that, that's it you've got in, in our speak and i don't know if people listening sort of know the way a lot of software works but like we do sort of agile and you have tickets on a board and that ticket represents the value that you're going to give to the user or the business once that's in live you know you've delivered that and as a developer you can high five you've got this workout i think as a, as a team lead and as sort of a manager and leader that value is really hard to unpick. Um, and that's, I guess that's what I struggled with initially when I moved over to being a team lead is like, how mm. do you understand what value you've provided? And it's it's, le- it's, it's so much less tangible uh, as a sort of team lead. and Because uh, you're the same, aren't you? Similar, yeah. And I feel like yeah. I've been through that sort of journey probably a lot more a few years ago. I, I wanted to yeah. write the code and be the man that kind of pushed the button to go put it out to the world. But actually, I started to realize um, is this my strength or is, are other people better than me at this? And I, I think that was yeah. the transition period for me is going, actually, I'm better off trying to support people to do this in a better way, in a quicker way or wherever it might be, mm. but also learn from that and share it out. But like you say, monitoring and not monitoring, but getting those metrics and the, the, the value of doing that as a lead, it's a lot harder to record and observe on. There are the techniques you can do in agile yeah, ways of yeah. working, which again, yeah. some of these listeners probably won't be interested in. I, I talked to them um, to write in a list. So. No, no, it's just, I feel like you can get some metrics like, okay, how many bugs have we introduced over the last month? So we, we know quality is good. How many items have we de- delivered over the last month as well? Has it been up or down based on the previous months? Why as well? Is it because it was more complicated? Was it just because of technical challenges? So they're the metrics I'm watching for myself now and see the improvement. And funnily enough, recently I've been doing like a review for the team that I work with. And for the last three months, I've been doing like a quick report, go snapshot. This is what we've delivered. This is what we've kind of had to do from an ops perspective. This is the impact on our tech and our customers. And look at the improvements we've made over just three months. You know, I could take great satisfaction of highlighting this to the team and going, look what you guys have made. And they're like, oh, we, would, we wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for you. I went, no, you would have done it better probably, but I, I'm helping you uncover these things. That's the, the joy I get from what I do now is sort of seeing the, yeah. the team recognize they're good, they, they've built good stuff, and I can help them shape that going forward. Yeah. Do you feel the same, though, when you, you're working with your guys? Yeah, de- definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I sort of... Um... I, I basically decided that I was going to write down what I was going to, what I, I did. There, there was a, I had someone new join, join our team um, who, as one of our senior engineers. Um, and he, there's a technical architect who used to work at the BBC, who he knew reasonably well, um, who used to write down, like, since he started at the BBC in like 2014, 15 or something, he wrote down exactly what he did each week. And I thought it was really interesting. I'd never done that before. And I started doing it because 
I would get to the end of the week and I would have done a lot of things, especially like as a, as a, as a sub team lead and your leadership role is to often to have a lot of one-to-ones to unblock your team. And once your team starts getting big, my team's eight, I've got one open role. So it'd be like nine people. And I have a few other, you know, different, like you're managing up type meetings and one-to-ones and things like that. You just, you get to the end of the week and you think, what have I done? But I write down everything that I do each week now because I realize that I unblock a lot. I unblock the team a lot and I add value by doing that. But I also, the things that you look at as a sort of team leader, they're probably more long-term and it's that, uh, it sounds a bit, you know, management-y, but it's like the strategic things that you go, well, I've had a conversation with X, Y, and Z across the business, which in six months will come to fruition when we can do that work, but it doesn't necessarily add tangible value right now but you've had those conversations and all of a sudden my team are talking to your team and we can do the work together and you know I'm part of a platform so a lot of stuff we do is to enable other teams product teams at the BBC and so if I can have these big sort of wide-reaching conversations then that's that's sort of where I should see my my value do you know what I mean yeah I know where you're coming from I, I've um, I was talking to because I basically as I'm I'm leaving ASOS very soon we've got a new replacement I was talking about the handover stuff I was like what is our role uh, the, the job title I've got is agile delivery manager but what does that actually mean and I was going through all this sort of stuff and he reminded mm-hmm. me I actually created a manager read me about two years ago put it on github and put it out there because it's not it's pretty open stuff but it does make you realize you know what am I here to do I'm a servant leader for you guys I'm an unblocker I like to make the silly analogy I'm a ma- super mario just give me a plum- plunger and mm-hmm. I'll unblock the, the problems but yeah it's interesting how you shift your sort of requirements your your purpose I guess and how you facilitate those changes over time as well I think I think the big big thing you've got to realize is the managing up as well so you've got to yeah set the expectations and, and like I think that the, the people don't realize it. and there's that difference between management and leadership isn't there as well so I, I used to manage people I did a lot of graduate recruitment at Sony in the sort of late 2000s. And I'm sure if anyone who, who I recruited is listening to this, I've still got friends who, who um, I recruited. I don't think I was a particularly good manager at that point. I was very technical and I wasn't very good at doing the sort of people part of it as well as I am now because I don't think my mindset was right then. I think now my mindset is like, right, that I unblock and help the team and protect the team. And also manage that sort of stakeholders expectation up that you have to do. You know, you have to talk to senior people and you have to understand their needs. And it's that sort of balance of sort of leadership both ways, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, too right. I I, I agree with you because I think I was about about 29 when I started managing one person. It was only one person, but it was still management. Mm. I went on a course about good management and I was like, yeah, if I've gone on a course, I probably shouldn't be here doing this. But <laughs> yeah, it was the two-way conversations. I think I was I was more focused on managing up than down at that time. Yeah, selfishly because I was all about my personal, you know, improvement. Yeah. But as I've got older and more mature and learning from all my experiences, I'm realising actually managing down is the harder part. Yeah, but the most valuable part, managing up, is actually quite straightforward if you know the right way to communicate and who to speak yeah. to about it. Like say, managing expectations. Yeah, I think we could go on and on about this, and I'm mindful that our time is flying by. And, uh, so you alluded to something earlier, and we're going to talk a bit about your health. Um, you had a really scary story in 2014 that really threw you out, and you said you're like five months out of work. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that, and you know how you got through it all? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit of an unexpected turn back in uh, June 2014. So just out of the blue, it's actually right at the start of that sort of program of work that I mentioned at the BBC. So we were sort of transitioning. I, I went down to London and 
came back it was a wednesday i remember it really vividly and on the thursday i just i, f- I felt a bit ill it was like a stomach bug sickness and diarrhea that's that sort of classic stomach bug that you so i went home and um it just got progressively worse over that weekend so that was a thursday i I was meant to go into a school to, to, to give like a, a sort of workshop with with my boss at the time. And I felt really awful and I had to just send him a, a message just saying like, I'm, I'm really thrown up. I, I just can't, I can't get out of bed. I can't, can't come. And then that whole weekend, I just, um, it just got progressively worse. And, you know, normally a stomach bug's like 24 hours, 48 at worst, but it just, I do, I couldn't keep anything down. And to be honest with you, my, my memory got really hazy at that point and I got really confused and, my wife had taken me to to see the doctor on the Friday because she was concerned. And then again on the Monday, and he basically said, look, there's something not right here. And he felt my stomach and apparently I was really in pain and I, I don't really remember this. And I essentially got rushed to hospital. I went into um, A&E and they just took me in overnight and they just said, you know, I'll give him fluids. It'll be okay. Don't worry. And Claire saw me on the Tuesday. This was the Monday and she saw me on the Tuesday. And then again, they said, oh, he's recovering. Don't worry. And then at about two o'clock on the Wednesday morning, they rang her and essentially said, you better come into the hospital. We think he's going to die. And it turns out that I had uh, like a streptococcal infection, streptococcus group A in the bowel. So they gave me a big CT scan and saw there was something wrong in my bowel. But by that point, and and it's, it's people talk about it all the time now, which is great. But at the time, um, nobody talked about it. And I actually had sepsis, which is when the, the, the body starts essentially attacking itself. And um, there's an infection there. And it's caused by like any infection, but the body essentially goes, do you know what? I'm going to protect myself. But unfortunately, that means you get multiple organ failure. So um, all of my organs pretty much started shutting down. So um, they stuck me in ICU in an intensive care uh, unit. They ventilated me, put me into an induced coma for about seven days. Um, and it was pr- pretty much touch and go. They, they essentially told Claire, my wife, that, that I was going to die and I was unlikely to survive the night. So sort of scary stuff for her, especially. And, and the family, the, the kids were, what, seven and four at the time. So yeah, so I ended up, I mean, thankfully I came through it, but um, it's it's not without an awful lot of uh, issues. So yeah, I was in sort of intensive care for about 45 days. And at that point I was on a ventilator. So I had to, odd things that you never think you're going to say, but I had to learn to breathe again. I had to learn to eat again because I was being fed by a, a nasal tube. I had what's called a stoma. So essentially they um, they cut part of my bowel out and they brought the, the tube from the, the lower intestines out of my body. Uh, most people have heard of a colostomy, but this is on the other side of the body, so it's where your ileum is, and it's called an ileostomy. And I had that for about 11 months in the end. But by giving me a lot of drugs to keep me alive, they didn't have enough blood going to my feet because they had to keep all, they keep all the um, the blood around your organs with the various drugs they give you. So I ended up having a partial amputation of my right foot because I got necrotic tissue, which is like when... Uh, explorers go to uh, the north south pole and you know they, they get frostbite and their ends of the feet and fingers drop off essentially because they die so they had to cut like the end of my uh, right toe off and i have got i've got no feeling in my feet anymore and um, so yeah so i moved down after 45 days moved onto a proper ward and then they had to i, I could barely move at that point because all the muscle wastage and stuff and it's loads of things you just don't even think about you know um, you wouldn't even think that you'd need to uh, think about. So it took me about yeah another month and a half to get out of hospital when when they decided I was well enough. But I had to learn to walk again, so I, I came out of, came out of hospital with a, a Zimmer frame, which I know I'm old, but you know it's a, it's an odd thing to have a Zimmer frame. Old. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was about forty two at the time. Yeah. So um, and then I, I had the stoma reversed eventually, but it, it, it's probably taken around. It took around two years for me to get to the point of normal, and I I, I say normal with inverted commas there because it's. It, we, we, Claire and I always say we, we set the new normal because 
there were a lot of things that I thought I'd be able to do. I'd just get back to normal and just, I, I genuinely can't. I, you know, I, I'm still alive. I have to look at it because I'm, I'm super positive, but I, you know, I look at it as I'm still alive, um, which is the good thing. It's just, you know, you, you're constantly dealing with, I get a lot of issues with my feet still because uh, I've sort of got like a diabetic's feet, although I'm not diabetic. So you, you can't feel them. So you have to be really careful about like stones in your shoes because they cause ulcers, like holes in you and you get infections. And oh, it's, yeah, it's just a, just a sort of knock on thing. But yeah pretty much threw me for for a good good period of time there but something to talk about isn't it <laughs> great anecdote for a podcast yeah yeah <laughs> no i mean yeah. also all, all, all jokes aside you went through some serious difficult times through that point like you say you're yeah, early 40s sure. you got a young family you got a you know a pretty intense job it's not like a, a plodding along sort of mundane job but i guess in a lucky way you're in a, a big environment a big company that had the capacity to support you as well through that yeah for sure so like you say trying to look at the positives it could have been a lot worse i'm I'm really impressed with how you've come about all this you've still been very positive the family have adjusted you've adjusted you found a way to get around a lot of these challenges and as you say you found your new norm haven't you that's what, that's what I say. I mean, the thing is, I think you realise, obviously, it, you know, it can't not make you readdress life. So, so in, in intensive care at Warrington Hospital, they give you um, a, yeah. a diary. They write a diary, essentially, sort of documenting what's happened to you. Because if you are well enough to come out of intensive care, and many people aren't, then it's a confusing time. It definitely was a confusing time for me because I was massively under sedation and, and sort of heavy drugs. So so to understand what, what's happened to you is quite difficult. It's very, very confusing. So you read this sort of diary when you're ready to. But to read the, the second night where they say, we've told your wife, although we've given you all the drugs we can, you're unlikely to survive the night. You can't not think about that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I don't constantly think I'm going to die but at the same time... You had a warning, didn't you? Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and I think it makes you sort of readdress everything. So we, we've tried to go with, like, the new normal, as, as I sort of said to you. Um, but we also, like, I, I can't remember where I read it, but it's like, don't sweat the small things. That's what we try and live by. And it's really difficult, don't get me wrong. It's, you know, it's when the idiot cuts you up on the motorway or whatever, and you get really frustrated by it. And it's trying to say, yeah, but I'm still alive. And, and it's trying to position it like that. Yeah, that person is doing whatever they're doing and they might have had a really rubbish day and that's why they're racing to get home or whatever. And they've just cut me up and they didn't mean to and they didn't see me. And it's hard, don't get me wrong, it is really hard. But I try and go, like, take a step back, let's try not to get too annoyed by it. And that, I guess that's why I'm sort of as positive as I am. Because we now try and build everything around our lives mm. and, and sort of, you know, the work-life balance, which, you know, is, is what your podcast's about. It, it's like, how do we ensure that, you know, yourself, our kids are growing up, my kids are now sort of 12 and 10. Um, and they won't be here for much longer in terms of like they'll go off to university and do whatever they're going to do. And it's sort of a trying to make sure that your family life and your, your sort of relationships and with people as a whole are right now in the sort of in the present, as it were. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. It's good, actually. that You mentioned stuff about the, the, the diary earlier just then about, you know, recording yeah. everything. And we'll talk about that in a moment because I know it's part of your recent retro that you've started doing this. But while we're on the topic of family and sort of, you know, uh, for finding that balance how do you get to spend time with them and what do you do for fun with them as well what do you get up to while you're with your family yeah well so I, our family so, so my wife works two days a week she's, she's a teacher um, but she also does a lot of tutoring in the evenings um, as well um, sort of supplement that um, she you know we, we talk as a family uh, um, well she'd already done part-time when she was uh, when she was had uh, our first child 
Um, but we sort of took a, took stock of like, she was commuting over to Manchester and we lived just on the outskirts of Warrington. So roughly between Manchester and Liverpool for people who don't know where it is. And we sort of took stock on like what she wanted to do. So she sort of reduced her hours a bit and to down to two days so we could like spend more time in the family. So yeah, do you, I mean, during the week, I mean, it, it, you know what it's like yourself. There's always homework and things like that to do, but um, uh, you know, we enjoy playing sort of games and with the kids. The kids are quite into sort of video games and things like that. Um, trying to get them off YouTube is usually the the thing, as you I'm sure you know yourself. Oh yeah. And then to be honest, with you, the the family. So I, my wife Claire was really into sort of musical theatre and drama when I, when I met her. And um, yeah, so so theatre is a big thing in our lives. Um, and the kids love theatre. They do a lot of drama at the weekends and stuff like that. Um, so so the, the, to be honest, with you, there's lots of going out and, and seeing shows when we can, and they're in a lot of things. And then we've just been trying. To, I've just been trying to make sure that, I, especially for my own health, that I try and do more exercise because I'm. I think I got guilty of not wallowing in my own self-pity, as it were, but like being really sort of very, very ill. It's very hard to get back into a process of like doing regular exercise when you have to be really wary about the, re- the exercise that you do. Like just before I got ill, I was I had one of those 40, 40-year-old midlife crises type thing and said, do you know what, I should get fit. And I was training for the Warrington Half Marathon. So I was running about sort of seven miles, uh, you know, from my, my runs, I could run about seven miles. And I was really chuffed with that. But then now I can't really do any running because it's so high impact on my feet. And I've just trying to, I'm trying to sort of readdress my uh, my sort of health there. And so, so just trying to get out with the kids at the weekend. And we've tried to do a lot more walking, especially this year. We're trying to get out every weekend to make sure we, we live right in the countryside, sort of uh, just on the edge of Warrington. So almost sort of countryside of Cheshire. So within like 20 minutes, we can be out in a, in a field or up a hill or something like that. So just trying to do a bit, bit more like that. And I think as the kids are getting older, they're, they're, they're starting to get to the point where they want to create a bit more. And I'm trying to encourage that while still keeping some sort of privacy you know it's that hard balance isn't it you know all the, all the kids nowadays want to be youtubers but i'm not sure i'm comfortable with the kids being on youtube even though i've done a few myself but like it's it's that it's that hard sort of balance isn't it so i'm, I'm trying to make sure that they while they consume youtube that they create as well and i've always been like I, all my side projects are always on do a bit on the side music programming whatever it's trying to get get that sort of balance isn't it with them it is, yeah, and yeah. There's many elements to that that we share. I think so. Like you, got two kids. They are addicted to YouTube. Um, so getting them off their screens and into the real world at the weekends is crucial. And anything we can do, to even to say, "Come on, we're going out for breakfast on a Saturday morning," just to get some quality time with them. So it sounds like you, you, you kind of get you get in there, right? It's it's not easy, yeah. but that that's one element. I'm like you. I'm trying to encourage them to make things on their if they're on computer time, like we did as a kid. So I think I feel like yeah, yeah. if you're making, you're learning or enjoying, but it's not just wasteful, mindless gaming or YouTube views or Netflix, or whatever it is. So it, but it's not easy to get our kids off these devices. And we we say as we're both looking it's at screens, talking to each other when we should be in the real world. It's true, and it is tricky, isn't it? Because like my my side projects, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, but um, yeah. You know, I, I tend to do a lot of stuff on a computer, so I, I'm just as guilty of sitting in front of a, a computer or, a, you know, electronic device as they are. And one thing that I've tried to do, I tried to do it last year especially, and this year is I track a lot of things. I've got a little Google spreadsheet where I do my habit tracking. And one thing I just want to do is read, because I used to love reading, but I look back at my past few years, and I'm like, you read like one book in 2015 or whatever it was. And so I, I just made sort of a little, I don't really do New Year's resolutions, but I set sort of longer term goals, I guess. And um, one of them was just, can you read 10 books in a year? And I did, I managed to read 10 books and I was quite chuffed with it. And 
So this year I'm saying, can I read 20 books this year? And um, I'm just on my third now and we're not at the end of January. So it's it's not bad going. So, but, but it just means that I've, I've purposely tried to shut off at a reasonable time and say, put your electronics away rather than scrolling mindlessly through Twitter as I am wont to do. Just why don't you actually pick up the book and read a few chapters of that? And yeah, it's, it's, it, I think it's it's good to get that balance, isn't it, between sort of electronic and the real old world, as it were. Yeah, I've, I've been doing exactly the same again. God, we, we're copying everything. I was New Year, I was like, I need to read more. I realised, like you, I only read about four or five books last year. But I'm on the train for 50 minutes each way to London every day. So it's like, I, I could commit to just reading for 20-odd minutes or a chapter every journey. And I've even set up a reminder in my task app to go, time for reading yet? I'm like, yes, it is. Thanks for that. Yeah. And the screen down, book open and enjoy. <laughs> but it is so easy distraction because when you yeah. like push notification in Twitter or yeah. Tweetbot or whatever it is, you're like, oh, what's that? No, don't look. And I tell you what, Apple watches are even worse for this because you just get a, a, like a tap on your wrist yeah. going, by the way, it's like Clippy in the office. It's like, by the way, did you want to do this? Did you want to look at this? Like, Shut up, leave me alone. I want to read. So yeah, I, I know what you mean, but I feel like we need to encourage this with everyone around us nowadays to just remind there's an amazing world around us and tech doesn't necessarily comply with this. So turn it off. Yeah, you talked about your tracker there, actually. It's something that caught my attention in your annual review from last year. So did you say you just used like a Google Sheet to record this stuff? Yeah, it was just, a, it was just, a, I don't know why I started doing it. I, I must have run a blog post or something like that. And it was more that, you know, sort of quantified self thing where you, if you don't know what you do, then like, like to track it is to understand it, I guess. So yeah, so I track my exercise. So I did like a single, whether I did exercise, I, I wanted to get better at writing, reading, early night. I tracked units of alcohol just to see how much I was drinking, side projects. And then, uh, yeah, I think that was it last year. So about six or seven things then yeah yeah and it was just more like like what what do i want to achieve and what do i actually care about and like to mention like things like the alcohol thing i don't actually drink that much as i've got i guess when i was ill a bit i didn't drink for at least a year when i was ill uh, post illness and then, and then it's just like it's not a thing that i often do i do i mean I, you know i do have a beer every now and again i had a glass of wine the other night but it's just like i just wanted to see how much i was actually drinking and uh, to be honest, what I should probably track is like mood and stuff like that against it because I do find that to, to drink means the next day I'm often tired and then it's like, you know, it's just the correlation of those sort of things. And I genuinely wanted to see if by writing it down, oh, do you know what it was? I think it was, have you ever heard the thing about the streak? It's a guy who does uh, Seinfeld. Oh, yeah, yeah. So basically he, he his idea about comedy was to write a new comedic routine, joke, whatever, every day and it was to not break that, that streak. So you've got to be doing it for as many days as you can and I think there are lots of apps that you can do this and essentially part of it was that like if I write down the fact I'm going to exercise will I continue to exercise for a period of time and to be honest it did work for periods of time in certain times you know exercise I can just see here from last year I did 25% of the year was exercise so that's pretty rubbish I don't know um, that's pro quite good for a lot of people nowadays yeah but but I mean I guess it's better than I used to but it's, it's just like trying to track it and like you know, if I can track it more, then hopefully I'll do something about it by thinking, do you know what, you don't do much here. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a data junkie myself. I, I like to record things like health, like my exercise, food at the moment, because I'm trying to understand my dietary demands. But then, yeah, like I say, yeah. the reading thing, it's, it's, it's built into the app TickTick um, that I use for all my task management. 
and they've built in this new feature called habits and you can set your own habits there's right. some recommendations like reading and exercise but to me I've, as i say to a lot of people unless you're observing your tracking what's the point you don't do it just do it for the satisfaction do it to actually learn your habits and yeah. that's the bit i'm missing at the moment i was curious how you're doing it so it's like a google sheet you'll have to share with me at some yeah. point or anonymize yeah do a blank template and then we maybe put it in the show notes for other people to have a play with yeah you can you can share it yeah i probably probably people don't want to see what i'm doing every day but yeah i definitely share the sheet it's nothing exciting it's literally a google sheet with like a few columns in it yeah. and then a few formulas which just do number of days in the year work out a percentage of what you've done against the number of days that have gone past already it's just that yeah. it's, it's quite boring but you, you say it's boring it sounds quite interesting to be fair That's, yeah. this is what we're on the planet to do so i'd like to know what the hell i am doing with it but yeah i guess it, i mean it, and it has it it, it definitely made me do some streaks and the, and the and the sort of 10 books is just was a personal goal last year and and to be honest with you, I was in December at like nine books and I was like, I need to read one more book. And it was like, a, I felt like a, a dread that I wasn't going to hit this 10 books. So um, it did, I think it did help. What'd you do? Just grab like a little Ladybird's kids book yeah, and just go, yeah, one of the kids yep, books, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 20 minutes, boom. <laughs> now, I, now I ended up, I ended up getting a Kindle book and then yeah, just sort of devouring that. And especially over Christmas when you, you know, you, Quite maybe it's, you've got a bit of downtime because you're not, you're not in work as much and stuff like that. So I managed to do it in the end. Which is good. good. Sounds like you're getting a better balance anyway, especially after your um, 2014 yeah. moment, life crisis. Right. We've done health. We've done work. Let's talk, which we've already talked a little bit about side projects and yeah. some of the things that you get a real kick from, not just work and health and stuff, but actually, you know, what is it that you've been doing up to lately? Let's rewind a little bit. 2005, me and you, we both went out into the podcast world with our own music podcasts. Yeah. What attracted you to doing that and um, where did it take you? Yeah, podcasting was an interesting one. So as I sort of alluded to earlier, I, I had DJed and I was a relatively successful DJ in Germany at least. Um, I had a friend who, who at university, he um, did his, a German degree, so he was out there for a year and I used to send him cassette tapes, the old, old, the old mix tapes. And so in the sort of 2000s, I realized that I could sort of use my technology knowledge to try and help build something. Honestly, I started podcasting because I found out about it and I started listening to a few podcasts and I thought I could use this as a way to get my music out there and my mixes and get myself some more DJ gigs. And ultimately, it never really happened in that way. I did get a few offers, but it was all, yeah, it just never came to fruition, really. But yeah, so I, started, I did that podcast around the same time, you know, you and I met up until about 2011. And I think having kids and just having less time, just for me, at least, just stopped me from doing it. And I'd started to slow down on the DJ and also at that time anyway, just suit sort of natural progression of getting married, having kids, in all honesty, probably not wanting to go out till like six o'clock every, you know, every night and what have you. But yeah, then I guess around the sort of 2009, 2010, I was probably also looking for what, what sort of side projects can I do to potentially make some money on the side as well. I guess it's, you, you know, you start reading about the successful side projects that people have. And while I, in all honesty, I don't think I've necessarily had one yet. I did quite a bit. I mean, I, I definitely did some stuff around sort of affiliate marketing and, and, sort of google adwords at the time a little bit of marketing and, and advertising in, in early sort of 2010 ish um and I, I made probably about 11 or 12 grand from that oh, but that's over like three or four years if you don't know about google adwords um I, in the financial space as well i don't advise that as a for the faint-hearted you're talking like five or six pound a click and uh, it was pretty pretty hairy but i did that for a little bit and then i just i guess it's the transition from games into to more web tech i moved my side projects have tended to be 
sort of scratch my own itch, I guess. It tends to be a technology I think I'm interested in or want to learn more about, so I'll build something around that. And what was really interesting, I, I, one of my goals for this year is to write more. So I wrote that, that 2019 retrospective on my website, which was taking the stuff I got from my habit tracker, looking on GitHub and like, like where, where I've done code. Because I don't, I don't really code during the day either um, you know, from a day job anymore. So it's, it's things on the side. And I realized I've done an awful lot in the past year. A big thing that I, I sort of got into about 2017 was sort of, messenger chat bots and I genuinely I can't remember why I started reading about them um, and it's just like I, I like automation anyway the idea that we have the ability to set up a few things that can talk to each other and ping something over here and do that and can automate the process I think I think it's really powerful and there's a big thing about around no code movement isn't there at the moment for, for people that aren't coders being able to do that I got into that and then I, I found a platform called ChatFuel, which is like a, a chatbot platform for messenger and I, I just joined their Facebook group and I became sort of a, a bit of an expert and people were struggling with this they have this idea of this this JSON API so, you, so JSON's a data format for people that don't know and I was just like, well, people don't understand it. I'll just make a YouTube video. So I made these like simple YouTube videos explaining. And then people love that. And I love helping people. And I think that's probably shows in like my team lead role, hopefully, that, that I enjoy helping the team and I enjoy teaching people. We've got some less experienced people on the team. So I enjoy mentoring and things like that. So it's just that sort of thing um, that I got into. And then I did a little bit of consultancy around that, although... If you read my 2019 retrospective, it didn't go quite as well. A few invoices not been paid and things like that. And some people who wanted an awful lot but didn't offer much in return. Well, that was mainly 2018, but it's just a bit frustrating because I, you know, hopefully I'm, I, I haven't burnt any business bridges, but to, to do work for people to not be paid for it is just frustrating. So mm. Been there myself before. Yeah, I, I think I built some web projects back in the noughties on the side. And I spent a lot of time. I think we even cancelled a, a bank holiday weekend so I could actually focus on the project. Got it all done. Quite happy with it. I worked with a friend as well. So it was two of us working on this. Sent it over and they were like, don't like it. I'm not going to pay you. I was like, excuse me. But th this was this was a guy who got a lot of sort of authority, a lot of kind of, he plays the business game quite well, let's say. And I'm more of a softy. I'm harder to kind of push it as I should. But I learned from that. I was like, right, I'm never, ever going to cancel a bloody bank holiday again for these things. I'm going to make sure that I've got good terms in place if I ever do one in the future. But quite frankly, I think that was the last paid project I took on. And I felt like, like you, I wanted to chase things that I enjoy. It's my time and I want to learn new things. So I'm not going to try and monetize from these things. I just want to try and enjoy it, give back to the community, teach people if I can, learn myself. But really sort of take a reality check is why am I doing this? Yeah. You know, it feels like you've been through that a few times in different ways, like with the podcasting, with the affiliate marketing, and then, you know, the, the bots as well. So what's the plan with these courses as well now with all the training around bots? Yeah, so, so I wrote, um, uh, wrote a little ebook last year, which to be honest with you took me far too long, and I, I probably made it too long as well as about thirty pages. Tried to make it pretty, and, and pro tip: don't use Canva to do ebooks. While they look very pretty, they're um, it's a sort of basic design software, and it's um, it's good for making pretty pictures and Instagram images or whatever. But it's less good. Great for quick wins like that. Yeah, but rubbish for big proper things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, and it is. It's, it's a brilliant tool. Don't get me wrong, but it's just I was trying to find a a nice way to write an ebook which allowed you to write and make it look pretty because I, I just think that and perhaps this is wrong on my part and this is where I'm probably not very good which is like my marketing and, and networking type for myself is I always felt it had to be like a you know an attractive looking product digital product whereas sometimes you get like those free downloads or, or pdfs from people and they are literally google docs that have just been exported to a pdf 
and I, and I didn't want that. I wanted to spend a bit more time on it. But I spent, I genuinely spent probably about three months, which should have been a, a week-long project, I'm sure, which is a bit frustrating. So yeah, this year, I'm just trying to work out what to do. And I think I, I work with my, my wife quite closely and we can perhaps very briefly touch on what she does but just uh, i'm looking at sort of another digital product but actually getting it, something out there and, and seeing that people will pay for it because i think i do an awful lot of things that spent that i spend a lot of time on it, and i think they help me personally but it would be good to have this little sort of side project and and, and make a little bit of uh, extra income or you know a lot of income you know from sort of a course or a, a digital product or you know ebook type thing i think something like that is where what, what my aim is for the at least the first sort of quarter of this year I like the fact that you set yourself like a, a short-term goal, even to just sort of understand what it is going to be. And then you can kind of go, right, I've got a year to do that now. Yeah, you know, yeah that's probably doable. I think it's really it's really easy to fall into that though, isn't it? And I am definitely, my fail, biggest failure, I think, is is the, the shiny. Look at that look at that exciting thing over there. And I think everyone does this who, who does a lot of side projects. They start something, and I'm sure your GitHub's the same. It's just full of broken projects that you once thought were brilliant ideas that you've not touched again for like three years. And it's just about like, I think you need to focus on something but get that validation up front i've realized more and more that i'm not very good at understanding what the market wants i guess probably because i'm more of a technology background than a marketing background and it's just about you see people who do well and it's just that they validated first and i think that's my aim is to just understand what i'm going to build and then build it and time box it to a, to a short period of time and then I can throw it away if it, you know, if it's not worked, you know, it's only made a little bit of money. That's fine, but I'll find that. That's the plan. Indeed, and I think that's what the on the side community is really all about as well. It's taking those people and those little projects that kind of either blocked or stumbled or lost traction, try and get them finished and get something into market and help people each other do that with a bit of motivation as well. Some people are better than others in that community. Dom Hodgson, who's in there, we've talked to him on this show before as well. He's very good at just going, right, this is what the market needs and this is what I want to build and I'm doing it and I've got it done. And then we'll talk about it a bit more. But it's very hard. I'm not saying it's easy. And like you say, it comes with our maturity, yeah. I guess, as well in what we do as our jobs. Yeah. You mentioned your the work you do with your wife as well and her side project. It's a series of young adult fiction books. So can you tell us about that and how you find working with your partner on something, which is something I'm kind of working out myself as well. <laughs> yeah, it's it turns is great, and and I think naively when I was younger, I didn't think my mum and dad unfortunately split up when I was younger, and my dad since died. And it's a long story, but I think I think I wasn't convinced that like being in a partnership with someone was like amazing, and and then I got married, and it was just the most amazing thing ever. And anyone who doesn't think they want to get married, it's actually quite a good thing. Um, so I I'm super supportive. My wife says um she is incredibly motivated and she's basically uh, similar to your wife's side that she, she was a, she's a teacher she's an English teacher and has been for you know quite a long time now but she started we, we started discussing I guess a side project type thing and I was I had the wherewithal to do the technology parts of things for her. and I said well why don't you self-publish something she wanted to be a writer and I bought her like, teach yourself to how to be a writer type author type book and then she's like oh that's a good idea and I was like you could literally we could just push it out and she wrote in 2012 she wrote three or four I think GCC study guides and they were she, because she had knowledge of the the syllabus and stuff like um, of mice and men was on there um, a play called DNA by Dennis Kelly and she wrote these two guides and they made us some money and we were like, oh, you can make money out of sort of publishing, self-publishing. Um, and then we went on holiday in 2013 and, and to Menorca and she said, I've got this idea for this short story about sort of a thriller in Menorca. I was like, all right, write it. And and that, and that she did all right out of it. And, and like, all right is like, you know, a few hundred pounds versus, you know, we all wish that we were JK Rowling and millions and what have you, but... <laughs> 
JK Rowling in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But then she started sort of looking into like what she could do. She wrote a, a sequel to that. They were both like novellas, so they were about sort of 30,000, 40,000 words, so sort of smaller books. But it was just like trying to learn about Amazon and, and, and how you sold things because the Kindle opened up this sort of digital market which, which didn't exist for self-publishers. And then she started writing some of these dystopian uh, young adults of sort of things like Hunger Games, The Maze Runner type that. And she got this, this series called Flow. And she's just released, just uh, last week, her fourth book and final book in the series. So since 2017, she's been writing sort of a book a year. So I, I sort of worked with her quite closely in the in the early days. I did wow. some covers from some of the early stuff, the GCSE guides and stuff. But I'm no graphic designer. And, you know, Canva didn't exist at the time. So I was doing sort of Photoshop or Pixelmator I use on the Mac, you know, to, to do these sort of mock-ups. But there's a real art, to, literally an art, to it, to, to getting the right cover that matches the right style for the right sort of books. If you stand out, people don't necessarily think it's a thriller or a young adult dystopian or whatever so there's a real sort of art to getting the right style to which matches the the book so that people buy it and that's the big thing that we've got at the moment is just trying to learn about marketing so learning an awful lot about amazon adverts and facebook marketing and facebook adverts and things like that so we do a lot of that together because it's i've done some of the google adwords in the past so i understand some of the concepts perhaps better than she does at the moment but she understands it's from a from a book point of view and from a from an author point of view, and it's moral support more than anything. I think as a, in a relationship to support each other is is fantastic. And I've not really mentioned it much here, but I I gave a big push at the BBC for sort of remote working because when I was ill, I had to. I, I literally couldn't come into the office. Um, I was going to hospital a lot. Um, and I've become a little bit of a poster boy at the BBC for sort of remote working. So I've been pushing a lot. I go and talk to quite sort of senior leaders about how we should be supporting it, which is great. But one thing we often do, and I'm working from home today, is we work remotely, um, but we both work in the house together in separate rooms. And that actually works. And we had we had some uh, we had some work done in one of our bathrooms, just had a, a new bathroom. And uh, one of the, the plumbers was like, you actually do work when you're in the house. I'm like, well, well, yeah. But And he seemed quite surprised that you could work from home and actually do work. She'll be in the room or we might have a chat at lunchtime about, you know, what she's been doing and, and I try and sort of support that. It's great. I mean, uh, you know, we don't work together sort of 24-7, but um, yeah, it's great. And uh, if I can help her to be successful, and hopefully she will be successful, it's we're getting there slowly. It's all good. Nice. Lovely story. And I love the fact that you've got that shared passion and interest and goal ultimately as well. Her success will yeah. benefit both of you really, won't it? But it's more about actually, yeah. I'll, I believe you should do this. I will help you do this. And we'll both learn along the way. You, She can do more author side of things. You can do more marketing side of things. My wife is similar, actually. Again, she's got a, an amazing idea for a new book, similar young adult a dystopian thing. I, can't, I don't want to give too much away. She was like, don't share this anywhere. I'll register your domain for the name that you've got because it's quite a cool name. But again, I, I want to be able to help her and say, look, you can do this. Even if you, all you've got time for is voice memos. You can record while you're driving and then we can get that annotated and start editing it out that way because her time is so tight anyway as a teacher. She, she leaves the house at 6 a.m. with me. She gets home at 7 p.m. like me. We don't have time for these sort of side projects. You know, it's five days a week. But I want to do it with her and I'd love to have a little project I can do with her. So it's, I like the, the way you found a way of doing this together and using your evenings and weekends to your advantage as well. Yeah, and I, I mean, I switched over to just to make her sort of marketing efforts easier. I, we did have a, a, a WordPress website and... WordPress, love it or hate it, you know, there's some foibles in terms of like updating and stuff like that. And I just, I just wanted to be doing the 
how it looked and the content as opposed to doing um, all of the faff with PHP and plugins and finding the right plugins and making the templates work and all that business. So I just rewrote her website with Gatsby, which I know is a total developer thing to do because you end up spending all your time writing sort of React components in with for Gatsby. But um, I did that and I think I think that's, that's sort of helping to be able to put the things in place so she could, she didn't want like a blog and stuff. She wanted more of a content site. And it was just like putting those things in place, little bits of JavaScript, which can tell her MailChimp, you know, her email marketing, and she can put those in place and get the right data that she needs to, to understand how, how people are sort of coming onto the site. So I do all that sort of stuff, the techie support, I guess. But yeah, I think I think it was one thing just to leap yeah. back to what you said then is it's just being aligned, isn't it? It's just believing in each other. I don't think either of us would make these sort of side projects work if we didn't believe in each other and our ability to do it. And I think it shows that she's putting in a lot of hard graft in order for it to come to fruition years later. And I think it will. I just think there's a, little, a few little key things we just need to sort out around advertising because unfortunately that's a necessary evil nowadays, I think, within the, the self-published space at least anyway. But once we crack that, then I, I think the, the world's a oyster. Absolutely. It's time next year, Rodders. I know, yeah. I can retire. <laughs> <laughs> Wicked, mate. I think we have pretty much gone over our time for today but before yeah. we move on and wrap it all up have you got any advice or a tip for anyone who's trying to enter your sort of industry and tech what you might have liked to have heard when you were in that position one thing that i've learned over the years and, and sort of a big thing for me is like consistency is key i think you realize this that the people that have got successful and, and sort of do well with whatever they do and whether it's technology or not is just that you have to show up i think that people doing like a you know, if you're coming into the tech scene and you don't know anything about it there are loads of great free resources you know like free code camp uh code academy there's loads of stuff on youtube and so start off there but don't like just show up every day do your hour of practice and sort of learn and fail and repeat and i think that's the best way to do it i know that's that's not like a a massive you know a silver bullet or whatever or a special key that will un unlock your careers but there's loads of sort of brilliant people on like twitter and there's loads of sort of local meetups nowadays things that probably weren't around when we were younger you know um some of my team they're involved with code bar and code up which are like sort of you know, for, for helping people get into tech. Um, and there's lots of great communities. And I know a big thing that I'm involved with at the BBC as a whole is diversity. So encouraging sort of women, minority groups, LGBTQ+, that sort of thing. I'm very heavily involved with that. And there are all these little groups of communities which will help you out. And a big thing that, that I, I wrote it in uh, my 2019 retrospective, which I don't do and I should do, is um, there's a guy called Sean Wang on, on Twitter who moved from, he was in like a, financial investing he was like an investor making like you know hundreds of thousands and decided he wanted to be a developer and now he's a really successful developer because he he has this thing called learn in public and it's basically like show what you're doing in public and share that with people and show your failures and people will chime in but i think that's really good and i think whenever i interview people i do a lot of interviews it's like to show that you've done something. Uh, one of my team worked on the um, the Pride London website, for instance, and, and he'd come from a non-computer science background, come from a graphic design background, and it was just like showing that the work that he'd done and being able to say, I, you know, I, I worked on the, the Pride website in Gatsby and React components, blah, blah, blah. Didn't necessarily have all the experience, but just to be able to show that was really cool. And I think it's just those things, just, you know, build something and, and show it off and keep learning like that. Long-winded answer, sorry. Long-winded, but <laughs> lots in there, I think, to pull out. You know, I like the idea that, one, you're reaching out to people to get advice and put your stuff out there so you can get some feedback as well. Don't be afraid to fail. That's another one you made a point of. Just, like, yeah. try something. If you don't 
example doesn't work, learn from it. Yeah. And be persistent as well. But yeah, lots of advice in that one. I'm not going to even try to summarize it. <laughs> Hopefully it's helpful. And I, I'm available. Like uh, what I always say to people, I've got a little pin tweet about helping people out on Twitter. Like I, I literally just send me DMs or send me a message on, on Twitter and I, I'm always willing to help people. I've got a little free JavaScript course, a testing course that I wrote, which you just, you end up in an email autoresponder and it sends you seven days of email. So I, we can link up that in the show notes and that's that, that should be helpful for people just getting started. That's brilliant. And nice way to wrap it all up really because I was just going to say, how can people get hold of you and uh, ask more questions if they're interested? Yeah, thanks mate. Yeah, so I am Mark with a C, Littlemore, L-I-T-T-L-E-M-O-R-E. So at Mark Littlemore on Twitter and it's Mark with a C. Well, we have to say that a lot. Mark Littlemore com is my website and you can find some links in there and you'll find me on youtube and stuff like that a few videos around the box space and the, the sort of javascript testing space but yeah just i mean twitter's generally the best place to find me as much as i try and keep myself off it i'm on it you're there and you might check in every now and then as you get a healthier balance of it all i've taken the app off my phone but um it came back on again over christmas so yeah guilty your honor i think i did the same so don't let's not go there <laughs> right mark absolute pleasure again as always to talk to you we'll definitely get you back again in the, in the future at some point to maybe dive into some of these topics a bit more because i think we've touched on so many areas we could be here literally all day just chatting non-stop like grumpy old men thanks for giving up your time on, on a friday as it were and uh, it's been a pleasure mate no problem mate. yeah likewise thank you very much thank you to everyone for listening and especially mark for joining me for this episode of the Make Life Work podcast. As Mark suggested, he's available as Mark Littlemore with the C on most channels, or you can visit his website, marklittlemore.com. As we also discussed, there's our on-the-side community network where you can join me and Mark and others who are working on their side projects, and you can talk to us about all your stuff over there. Just go over to onthesidenetwork which takes you straight into the Slack group. You can find all the details about this podcast and other episodes on sidejobling.com slash make life work or look for make life work pod on all the socials we're also available in the popular podcast apps apple google and spotify so make sure you subscribe rate and review to let us know what you think of it that's all from me join me next time when i'll be inviting along another guest to talk about balancing their work life and side projects on the make life work podcast